Good morning, everybody. This is not a Christmas sermon yet, but after this week, it's going to be Christmas, 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 okay? We promise that. That's right. You can turn to Genesis 15 if you want to get a head start. It shouldn't be that hard to find. But we are going to keep um, looking for at least one more week and then actually for a few more weeks after the new year at some of these really foundational ideas that carry on throughout Scripture and that we find uh, for the first time, of course, here in the first few chapters of the Bible. And today I really want to talk to you about the idea of grace, the idea of grace. Now, when you see the word grace, I think, how many people like that word? That's like, that's uh, Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, says that's the last best word. He said that, that so many other Christian, Christianese type of words have been, have been, their meaning has been changed and they've been cheapened in some ways by the way we use them or by the culture. But the word grace still seems to be just a, a, a word that everybody really appreciates and, and really loves that word. Now, if I asked you, what, what does grace mean? Uh, I don't know what kind of definition you'd give me. There's a, there's a pretty good chance that your definition of grace would have something to do with God because we tend to think of grace in terms of our relationship to God. In fact, some even say that grace, using the acronym G-R-A-C-E, will say that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. If you've never heard that, write it down. It's a pretty good definition. Um, but you might give us a kind of a, of a churchy religious definition of grace, or some of you might, if I said, what does grace mean? Uh, you can give me a different kind of definition, because we actually look for grace sometimes in our other relationships as well, don't we? Um, just between people. You know, do you ever need grace from your credit card company? Your credit card, actually your bank gives you a, what do they call it, a grace period of like 25 days after, so you don't pay your bill for a while, and you get to use the bank's money for a while before you have to start paying interest on it. They call that a grace period. And then if one month um, you forget to pay it off on time, if you're used to doing that, and then you forget, you may even be able to call the bank and ask them for a Another grace period, in a sense, can I have some more grace? And they will sometimes forgive your finance charge if you haven't done that in a long time. Um, The police officer who pulls you over may say to you, probably not, but he may say to you, I'm going to give you some grace this time. Now, one thing I I think it's, it's hard for us to understand and we need to remember is that sometimes those things that we call grace are really mercy. Because mercy and grace are connected to each other, but, but when you get that, when the cop lets you off like that, that's not really grace, it's really mercy. Because mercy is when, when you don't get something bad that should happen to you. When you deserve to have something bad happens, but it doesn't, that's mercy. Grace is when something good happens to you that you didn't earn or deserve. That's, that's grace. So they're really two different things, but grace is undeserved favor. It's undeserved goodness that comes to you. And sometimes it's hard to separate the two, so mercy and grace work together. Uh, when I think about receiving grace, I often think about the times that I've gotten to the end of a meal at a restaurant, only to find out that my bill has been paid by some friend who was sitting at the table, three tables over, I didn't even see him there. Uh, I think about the time when a lady in our last church got up at about 4.30 in the morning to come to our house and watch Daniel all day because we had to take Nathan to D.C. for a medical procedure. That was grace. That was uh, something we didn't deserve, but something we experienced. It was a gift that someone had graciously given us. Maybe the best example of grace this time of year is um, when we tell our kids they're going to get Christmas presents, but, but what's, the, what's the condition? They have to be good, Right? Santa's not going to give you any presents if you're not good, and so be good for goodness sake, right? And so if you're good, you'll get presents. Well, they get presents anyway, don't they? 
Even if they have been perfectly horrible for the last two months, they still get the presents. That's, that's grace. Even more so if your child says, hey, I guess this means that I was really good because I got so much good stuff. Right, mom and dad? And you say, yeah, you were, you were just a, a great kid. You were perfect. You were so well-behaved. You know. there, there's, a, there's a word for that. There's a theological term for that. We call it imputed righteousness. You, they, didn't, they didn't earn it, but you credited it to their account. But, but grace sometimes has a more mysterious edge to it, honestly, because receiving grace, it, it's a positive thing, yes, but it isn't always easy, and it isn't always pleasant when you receive grace. Let's say that you get a, a full tuition scholarship to attend some really good college, not because you had super high grades and earned it necessarily, but maybe because your guidance counselor went out there and found a scholarship out there that was just for you, you know, a scholarship for left-handed people with blue eyes who were born in October, and, and you get this scholarship. And you go to this college. And that was grace. It was super. It was a free education. It was a gift. But it may also have been an invitation to four years of working really hard to earn that degree. And so you're receiving the grace, but, but it's, it's not an easy thing. I think of Paul in first, uh, actually in Philippians chapter 1. Paul is in prison. And he's thanking the Philippian church for standing with him during his time in prison. And he says, in this, you are partakers of grace with me. Isn't that a strange thing to say? That Paul looked at his experience in prison and said, this is God's grace in my life. Why? Because God's gracious call had actually led Paul to prison, but he saw it all as grace. Grace isn't always easy. Sometimes it leads us through tough places when we receive grace. But another reason that, that grace is not always easy is that it often, so often, especially God's grace, comes to us in the form of a promise not something we receive right away, not some immediate benefit, but it comes in the form of a promise. God has promised us a lot of things, and sometimes those things that he's promised us, we have trouble understanding, we have trouble coming to terms with them, we have problems believing the promise, and that's because very often God promises us something, but we don't see it coming to pass. We don't see it happening, not in the way that we might expect. And so that leads to some tension we're going to read a chapter today that describes an event from the life of Abraham. And again, his name is still Abram at this point, but to avoid going back and forth, I'm just going to call him Abraham the whole time. But Abraham is a man who has already received, we looked at this back in Genesis 12, Abraham has already received a gracious invitation from God to a whole new life. A life that certainly was receiving God's grace, it was certainly a great thing, but it was also a life that was probably more difficult in just about every way than the life he would otherwise have lived if he hadn't answered God's call. And this chapter that we get to, which is Genesis 15, is actually steeped in the grace of God. There's so much grace here, but the grace comes to Abraham not in the form of an immediate gift, but it comes in the form of two promises, neither of which is very easy to believe. So let's go ahead and read our passage, and it's going to be the whole chapter, okay? So buckle up. It's not a real long chapter, so I think it'll go fast, but I'm going to read to you all of Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. 
And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age." And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Um, As we work our way through this chapter, and we won't look in detail at all of it, but I just want to look very simply at two aspects of grace that we see here, two aspects of grace, this undeserved favor we get from God. I, I want to look at, first, the proper response to grace. What should we do when we get a gracious promise? And then, second, the nature of grace. What's it like? And in both these cases, the grace comes, again, in the form of a promise, not an immediate gift. We saw last week, chapter 12, Abraham got this call, and God has already made some incredible promises to Abraham. He said, I will will bless you greatly. I will make you into a great nation. And he said that, that Abraham would even get to be the human channel through whom God would bless all of the families of the whole earth. That was the promise. Pretty awesome promise there. But if you're going to be made into a great nation, that would seem to require that at some point along the line, you're going to have to have some children, right? And it would also seem to require that at some point along the line, you would get some land, a location where this nation of people would reside. And Abraham, by this time, has already received multiple promises before chapter 15 that his offspring would be like the sand of the seashore. And that God would give him all the land in which he was currently wandering around. But Abraham finds himself in a place here in chapter 15 where you and I also often find ourselves. It's a place in which God's promises are going one direction and the trajectory of your life seems to be pointing in another direction. You ever live there? Where God's promises are saying one thing, but your circumstances seem to be saying another thing and there's a real tension there. God tells us to pray for what we need. 
He invites us to come to Him in prayer. We pray. We get into a, maybe a relationship difficulty or tension or problem of some kind. And we pray to God. We say, what should I do? And God shows us from His Word that we're supposed to love our enemies. We're supposed to forgive those who offend us. And we're supposed to talk things out. And we try to do that. And we do, we're as godly as we possibly can be in these situations. And sometimes as we follow God's promise, we, we see immediate results. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes it seems like our relationships become even more strained, even more conflicted, despite the fact that we're telling us what God told us, we're doing what God told us to do. God tells us if we have needs, if our family has needs, that we should pray for them and He'll answer us, and we do pray for them. And there are some times we can point to almost immediate results. I can testify to that even recently in my own life, and many of you can as well. But if we're honest, we also realize that sometimes we pray, and it's days, or it's weeks, or even it's years, and it doesn't look like anything is changing. And so there's a tension there between God's promises to us on one hand, and then on the other hand, his seeming inaction on our behalf. Even the simple but precious promise that God makes to us that he will never leave us or forsake us, sometimes that, problem, that promise seems a little shaky to us when we're walking through one of life's dark tunnels and we don't really sense his presence. Are you really there, God? I know you said you would be, but it just doesn't seem like it. Abraham is having one of these moments here. Now, he's not doubting the presence of the Lord. In fact, he's going to have a conversation with God. But Abraham's in one of these places where God's promise is over here and Abraham's experience is over here, and it's hard to put them together. And God actually starts the conversation. He says, Abraham, don't fear. I am your shield and your great reward. Or as in this translation says, I am your shield, your reward is very great, which is probably the right translation because Abraham answers by saying this, Lord, what can you really give me? This reward you're talking about, what is it really? I know you've blessed me. I know you've made me a very wealthy man, and Abraham was a rich man, but, but Abraham's saying, I'm getting quite old, and I've got no one to pass anything along to. If my offspring was going to be so numerous, God, I would have thought that by now I'd have at least one kid. But as it stands, one of my servants is going to inherit everything that I have. God says to Abraham, Abraham, stop looking at your circumstances for a minute and look up at the stars. So Abraham does. Can you count those? I didn't think so. Neither will you be able to count your offspring because they're going to be that numerous. And when Abraham looks up at the night sky, I want you to know that he's doing more than trying to count those stars. He is actually getting a vision of the bigness of God. And it's funny to think about today because we know that the stars that Abraham saw are what? One billionth of the stars that are actually out there. And God's even bigger than that. But as Abraham looks up into the night sky, he's not just counting stars. He's getting a vision of just the, the bigness of God. And God is saying to him, yes, Abraham, your observations that you're making right now may not line up very well with my promise. But don't forget who I am. I can see things you can't even begin to comprehend. So for you and me, if you look up at the stars tonight, if the, if the clouds ever go away and we get a nice night and you look up at the stars, I want you to let that remind you of the bigness of God. A God whose plans are more wise and more complex and more gracious and more wonderful than anything you could imagine. Even though you don't understand them right now. Abraham looked up at these stars, and at that moment, at that moment, something clicked for him in his heart. 
the questions in his heart collided with the Word of God, and the result was something that we call faith. Faith. It says that Abraham believed God. Now, you can go up to someone and say, hey, do you, do you have faith in God? And the person might say, yeah, I believe in God. I believe there's a God. Yeah, sure, I have faith in God. But you know what? Believing in God and believing God are actually two different things, aren't they? You can believe there is a God. You can believe God exists. But real faith, saving faith, is actually believing what that God says. Now, why do I say saving faith? Because according to Romans 4, at this point right here is where Abraham receives the righteousness that allows him to stand before God innocent and uncondemned. And he receives it by faith. He just believes what God says. The proper response to a promise of God's grace is simply this, to believe it. To believe it. After Jesus fed 5,000 people, one of the questions they asked him was, what shall we do? that we'll be doing the works of God. And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe the one that he sent. Believe. When you believe the gospel, when you believe the good news of Jesus, that Jesus saved you from your sin and gave you new life through his death and resurrection, when you believe that, there are going to be some implications, right? Because it also means that you believe that you need salvation. It means that first you have to believe that you are a broken and guilty and helpless sinner in need of God's help. But when you really believe God, when he says that he did that for you and for you personally, that's all it takes. That's all it takes, believing God. That is when the revolution in your life starts. That is when you start to change. That's when you start to really learn to love God. That's when you start to really desire Christian fellowship. That's when you start looking for ways to share God's love with those who don't know him. But the foundation of all that is when you trust in Christ. That's when God counts you as righteous. Not because of anything you've done, but because He takes the goodness of His Son Jesus and credits it to your account. And I'll tell you something, that's something that's better than anything your credit card company ever did for you. Because God does more than just forgive your interest or forgive your debt. He actually fills up your righteousness account to infinity for free. Think about that the next time you look up at the stars or try to count the the grains of sand on the seashore. But I want you to notice something else about Abraham's faith, and this is important, and it hits us, I think, where we live, and that's this, that Abraham is not afraid to ask some questions. Did you notice that? When God's promises and your experience seem to be pointing in opposite directions, it is not faithless to put the reality of the situation before God and to say, God, here's what I see, and here's what I understand you to have said, and I just don't get it. Abraham basically said that, right? And Abraham was a man of great faith. In fact, Abraham's words in verse 2 remind me just a little bit of the words of another great hero of the faith, a much younger hero of the faith, a virgin espoused to a man named Joseph, who was also told that she was going to have a son, and who said to the angel Gabriel, okay, I hear what you're saying, I I get it, but this is my reality. How can this be? How can this be? You can ask God that. It's not unspiritual to say, God, I hear you, I trust you, but I don't get it. 
I almost think that by starting this conversation right here at the beginning of the chapter, God is actually inviting Abraham to ask some questions, right? Doesn't it seem like that? Abraham, I'm just checking in here to remind you of the promises I've made to you that you've already heard, but I'm reminding you of them again. Is there anything you would like to say? In fact, not only is it not unspiritual to say, God, I believe you, but I just don't get it, it's even okay to say this, God, I believe you, but I'd really like some help getting to believe you more. God, I believe you, but could you do something to help me with my faith? Like that, that guy that had the demon-possessed son that Jesus hadn't yet healed, and, and Jesus said, before Jesus said, everything is possible for those who believe, he said what? I do believe. Help my unbelief. I need help here. Isn't that what Abraham does in verse 8 in response to God's promise about the land? Yeah, he's asking God for some help. He's saying, how do I know? I know you're saying this, but how, will, how do I know? How can I be sure? And you know what? When Abraham asks for assurance, God is more than happy to provide it. In fact, in providing this assurance, God gives Abraham and us an incredible picture of the nature of his grace, what it's like. The second half of this chapter can seem kind of bizarre. I agree, especially for those people like me who have never been into hunting, have never desired to be into hunting, so don't invite me, and have never had to cut up an animal that didn't come out of a freezer wrapped in cellophane. God basically, he tells Abraham to go get these animals. And it seems like Abraham knows exactly what to do with them. And that's probably because the ceremony that we see here is one that Abraham was already familiar with. God is going to make a covenant with Abraham. A covenant. This is a solemn agreement that can never be broken. A solemn agreement that can never be broken. Now today when we enter into formal agreements like this, we have other ways of doing it, right? If you've ever been part of a homeowners association, okay, I feel sorry for you, but if you've ever been part of a homeowners association, you have signed something called a covenant, right? And they would do certain things and you would do certain things. They would take care of the snow if it ever falls and they will take care of the garbage pickup or whatever. And, and then you agree that you will not let your dog run wild and you will not let your lawn go to pot and you will not paint your door hot pink, right? And when you do paint your door hot pink, there is a person from the architecture review board that shows up at your house and says, hey, you said you wouldn't paint your door hot pink. And you say, when did I say that? And they said, it's right here on the contract. Oh, really? Show me. And they show you your signature. Because your signature is your bond. Your signature is your guarantee. Sometimes we take that a step further, right? We have a notary public witness our signature and put down their signature. Or in the case of like a marriage license or a will or something like that, we have multiple witnesses. So that's how we do it. Later on in the Bible, you're going to see things like this where, where somebody makes a promise and takes a sandal off and gives it to the other guy. There's other ways to actually to, 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 you know, make your word good or to make that promise. Back in Abraham's day when they made a covenant, they would cut up an animal. Usually just one. There's a lot of animals here, but they would cut up an animal. In fact, the verb in Hebrew often comes out as to cut a covenant, not to make a covenant. And what would happen here is that the participants in the agreement would cut up this animals in half and they would walk together down the aisle between the pieces of the animals and it was understood that if either party ever broke the agreement, what you're saying to the other person is, you can cut me up just like these animals. That's the covenant. Your homeowners association would probably frown on this practice, okay? But it's, it's, you have to admit it's a lot more memorable than just signing a piece of paper. 
In fact, in doing this, you're actually calling a curse down upon yourself. That's what guys would do. They would call a curse down upon themselves from the God. So do this to me if I ever break my word. Now, there are a few unusual things. The whole thing seems unusual to us today, but even, even in that period, there are some very unusual things about this covenant and this ceremony in Genesis 15. First of all, it's interesting. When I read about this passage, and, I, and some of the commentators actually have a problem believing that it is what it is. They don't really think, some of them, that it's, that it's this kind of a covenant where you're calling down a, self, a curse on yourself. And they hesitate to conclude this. And the reason is that in the ritual I've described to you, it happened a lot in the ancient Near East, but nowhere in the records of all of these other people does a deity ever go through the pieces. Because gods just didn't do that. Your typical pagan god would never subject himself to this kind of accountability. He would never lower himself to walk down the aisle with a human being and call down a curse upon himself. Gods didn't act that way. But here we have Jehovah God, the real God, the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord of the universe, appearing in smoke and fire, kind of like a a mini version of himself as he's going to appear in Mount Sinai a few hundred years in the future. And his friend Abraham has just asked him for some help with his faith. And God wants to communicate his love and his faithfulness and his promise so much to this man, Abraham, that God is willing to walk between the pieces of the animal and say, Abraham, if I go back on my word, you can cut me up like these animals. But that's only the first unusual thing about this ceremony because there's something maybe even more unusual. As Abraham is preparing for this ritual, I am sure, here's what he's thinking. He's thinking probably that either God is going to command him to walk between the pieces, or maybe that God would find some way to appear or or, or in some form walk between the pieces with him together. But Abraham certainly never expected what happened. Because what happened in reality was that God actually knocked him out. God just puts him to sleep. So, Now, it's interesting, Abraham is put to sleep and he's put into kind of a trance so that he can actually see what's happening, but he can't move. He can't participate in it because God is doing this alone. And all Abraham can do is sit and watch. In the Bible, there are two types of covenants. Some of them are conditional covenants two-sided covenants. These are the traditional covenants, like the one God makes later with the people of Israel at Sinai. He agreed to certain things, they agreed to certain things. And his blessing of them, especially when it came to staying on the land, was conditional upon some things. It was conditional upon their obedience. Not so with Abraham. This is a one-sided, unconditional covenant. This is just a promise. God is making a promise, and he's going to fulfill it. He doesn't require anything of Abraham. Nothing. Not only did Abraham not have to earn his righteousness, he didn't have to earn his blessing either. It was all God. It was all done by God, and it all came by God's grace through faith. The fulfillment of God's promise was not about Abraham's faithfulness to obey and do certain things. The fulfillment of God's promise here is all on his faithfulness. This ceremony is all about the faithfulness of God. But I think we can take it one step further than that. And I didn't think about this initially, but I'm indebted to Tim Keller for something I I heard from him on this verse, and I think he's right. Because when I look at verse 8, it strikes me that Abraham doesn't seem so much worried 
about God's ability to keep his part of the bargain, it seems like maybe Abraham is more worried about his part of the bargain and how he's going to do it. Because notice how he phrases it. How will I inherit the land? I hear this promise, God, but how will I do it? How can I be sure that I will inherit it? How can Because honestly, God, I think I might mess this up. I am just a regular man with a lot of weakness who sometimes gives in to fear and whose faith isn't always that strong. So how do I know that I won't mess this whole thing up? How do I know I won't mess up your plan? Is that not where you and I find ourselves sometimes with God? We get a promise from God. And it's not that we think that God will break a promise because we know, at least theoretically, that God never breaks a promise. We know that he's faithful and that he can do it. But we wonder, what? Did I really hear that? Did I really understand it correctly? Did I really interpret the Bible right? Is that really for me? Is that, is that, did I get that right? What if I didn't get it right? And if I did get it right, and if God is really promising something and I can step out in faith on that promise, how do I know that I will have the courage to continue to do that when trouble and temptation comes? Because I don't know that I can. What if I'm the weak link? What if I mess up God's plan? What if I'm one of those Christians who tries to do things and just falls on his face time after time? What if that's me? Good question. What if it is? What if? What if? What, what if? What if this is true? What if by walking through the pieces of these animals by himself, without Abraham, what if God was actually walking through for both of them? What if God was saying this, Abraham, if I break faith, if I break my covenant, I'll be torn to pieces. And Abraham, if you break faith, if you mess things up, if you fail to get everything right, I'll be torn to pieces. That is God's promise to you, to you. When you come to the foot of the cross and you look up at Jesus dying for you to pay the penalty for your sins, you know what God is saying to you? He's saying, if I mess things up, I'll pay the price. And if you mess things up, I'll pay the price. Because I love you, he's saying, and I'm willing to give up my glory. I'm willing to give up my home in heaven. I'm willing to give up my reputation. I'm even willing to give up my own life. I will let you kill me if that's what it takes to bring you back to me. You know what? That's the God you and I pray to. That's the God that we so often struggle with. You know what? That's the God that we so often doubt when we can't connect the dots to make sense out of life. The God who walked through those pieces by himself and called down a curse on himself if he would ever fail you. You say, well, wait, I thought that promise was to Abraham. It was to Abraham and his descendants forever. You know who you are if you're trusting in Jesus Christ? Did you know that one of the stars that he saw that night was you? Because the Abraham's descendants are not just the physical children of Israel. They are people from every nation who believe God and receive the gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. Now there's at least one other covenant in the Bible that is like this. There's at least one other covenant in the Bible that is a one-sided, unconditional covenant dependent only on the faithfulness of one party, And this one happens to also apply to us. 
It's in Jeremiah chapter 31, and it's usually called the New Covenant. That's what Jesus called it the night he broke bread with his disciples before he died. The New Covenant goes like this, God talking. He says this, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They'll all know me from the least to the greatest. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. Brothers and sisters, this is the nature of grace. This is what grace looks like. It's not just a New Testament thing. It's who God always was, and it's how God has always dealt with his covenant people, by grace, because none of us has ever deserved his blessings or his favor or his salvation, not for one second. But when you come to Jesus, when you believe what God says, when you believe in Jesus, when you come to him by faith, when you trust in him, this grace, this one-sided, unconditional, guaranteed promise of forgiveness and new life is what you sign up for. Or I should say this, it's what God signs up for because he's the one who guarantees all of it. What you need to do is to trust him. And then when life gets difficult and the promise is over here and your experience is over here and when the path gets dark and the road gets bumpy, He's still the same God. He is still the God who walked through the pieces alone. And so you can keep trusting him. You can keep trusting him. Let's pray as the worship team comes.